I am Pete George, and we are live on Game Changers with Vicki Abelson. Our guest tonight is Terrence Blanchard. And, and this was piss poor planning because I didn't ask Terrence in advance to play, so we're not we're not we're not getting the trumpet tonight. But, but we'll we'll get we'll get some good conversation, and we'll yeah. deal with that. Terrence, thank you so much for Thanks doing for this. Me, you are like crazy busy man. Yeah. We we had this planned a couple weeks ago, and yeah. you were in a session, and you couldn't get out because you're doing yeah. a new movie, which. We, we were not at liberty to talk about right now, mm -hmm. but but you've got one that just came out that yes. Pete and I went to see a couple weeks ago, okay. and um, Harriet, for those of you who don't mm -hmm. know about Harriet Tubman, and mm -hmm. I don't know if you know this, but Allie Willis is a good friend of mine, and Allie is the one who discovered Cynthia Revo actually. Oh, no kidding. Because... Um, uh, when they were doing the color, Allie wrote the music for color, the Color Purple. Okay. And I went and sat in Allie's seats to watch that on Broadway, and mm -hmm. Cynthia got three standing oh, yeah. ovations oh, yeah. in one song. Oh, yeah. In one song. Oh, yeah. I've never seen that. Oh, yeah. I've been to a lot of. I've never seen that. Well, well, the, uh, well, Deborah Martin Chase, the producer of the film, mm -hmm. said that when she went to see her in the Color Purple, she had chills. She was unbelievable. Yeah. And mm -hmm. and but the fact that. In one song, people are going to get to their feet three yeah. different times. Oh, yeah. So, what a, what a force to have at the, at the and what a great time for Harriet to come out. It's perfect, right? Perfect. Empowering women. Yes. I mean, she what an unbelievable what, that story is incredible. And Harriet Tubman. It was it was it was a true honor to work on it. Mm -hmm. You know, and I was I was just overwhelmed when Casey asked me to do it. Um, did you know a lot about Harriet Tubman before? Yeah, I did. You did. I mm -hmm. did. But, but the thing that I think is so amazing about it, like you're saying, it's the perfect timing mm -hmm. for it because we have so many things, things going on in our country with the Me Too movement and then everything that's happening that happened today in our country. Mm -hmm. And to sit down and... <laughs> yeah, I saw a meme. It was like my favorite flavor of ice cream is peach mint. So, uh, somebody yeah. put, I had ran a thread today that said, I love the smell of impeachment in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, but the thing that I love about this film is the, is the timing of it because mm -hmm. not only, it, it's, it's not, you know, it was interesting because people tried to label this like a slave movie. It's not a slave movie in the least. It's a superhero movie. It's a movie it, about a woman who was like an amazing heroine. It's an emancipation. It's yes. it's 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 shocking. I mean, mm -hmm. I knew that Harriet Tubman had done some of. I had no idea. Mm -hmm. I had no idea that she went in there alone oh, yes. and and kept going back in there and mm -hmm. kept bringing more people and kept doing it alone. But what was the initial reason why she went for love? Yeah, love wins, doesn't it? Yeah, but the thing about it is, is like the, I'm the, coming is to the, bring us up on here so the, we can the, see the, the, the the strength of it. You know, that's the thing about it. It's not, I mean, you know, she and But she, she abandoned love to do the right thing. I mean, to do the right did, thing. did you do the right thing was more important than, well, than you know her what, personal you know, love story. But you know what I always say about that? It's the same thing that happens when you fly. When you fly, what do they tell you? If the mask falls, mm. put the mask on yourself first. Save yourself yes. first so you can save others. Um, and boy, did she save others. Oh, no. It was how, how accurate was, was all of that? I think a lot of it was pretty accurate. You mm -hmm. know, people will always nitpick little things, mm -hmm. but you only have a finite amount of time. Right, and it's also dramatic. Stories. You've got to tell yeah. a story, yeah. and it's got to be. So um, I'm very curious. Um, we're going mm -hmm. to talk about, well, maybe we need to go back to do that. Um, mm -hmm. I, I want to go through your story and how you did it, but 
when you're sitting down with with important material like that, mm-hmm. as as the Black Klansman is. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like this sense of responsibility? Like, I mean, I can't even imagine the weight that's on your shoulders to to score that. It, it is, but it, you know, I had I had this experience when we did Malcolm X. I was scared okay. to death. What oh, that movie? And um, it was a very important movie for a lot of folks, for everybody. Mm-hmm. And Wynn Thomas, who also worked on uh, Spike's latest movie, he was the set designer back then. Mm-hmm. And man, he calmed me down and he said, listen, we all want to do 150% mm-hmm. for this film. He said, but the best thing that we can do is just to do our jobs. And when he said that, you know, it took all of the pressure off. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't sitting there trying to write the greatest piece of music for this thing. What I was trying to do was to write the appropriate piece of music. Mm-hmm. So with Harriet, I took the same approach. I tried to let, especially Cynthia's performance, guide me, you know, and... And I use that as an emotional fuel mm-hmm. to tell me where the music should go. There was a couple of scenes that I watched when I first started working on it. Mm-hmm. One was the Walk to Freedom. Mm-hmm. I got very emotional just watching mm-hmm. it every time I saw it. And then other ones when she crossed the river. <gasps> yeah. It gives me goosebumps thinking about it. Yeah. At, at what point, I, I know a few composers for, for different mediums, TV, film. At, at what point are you coming in and starting to do your thing? Well, it depends. It, ten, it, it changed from director to director. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, with some guys that I work with, you know... They, like with Spike. They, Spike, before he starts to shoot, I get a script. I get a call. And, you know, we'll sit down and talk about what he's thinking about doing. And then he goes off and starts to shoot, and I won't hear from him for like two or three months. Uh, same thing happened with Casey with this. And are you starting to do stuff in that time? Well, with this one, Harriet, yeah. Um, I, uh, sometimes with Spike, I don't because Spike has such a unique cinematic vision. Mm-hmm. You, you have to, you can't go by just what's on the script. I see. Because he'll do some things visually that'll kind of send you in a different direction. And then how hands-on is he when not, not he, at all. he leaves you to do your thing? Yeah. But with Casey... Uh, and with Harriet, mm-hmm. you know, I started to just put together some ideas initially. But the thing that I started to realize was, man, I was coming at it from the perspective of a man's point of view. Mm-hmm. You know, because I tried, I attracted my voice, mm-hmm. and I wanted to have uh, this like kind of uh, uh, ancient uh, or ancestral kind of. Uh, sound uh, and I created this rhythm with my voice and I was going to use that as the rhythmic propulsion for the Mm -hmm. thing but then as the video started to come to me I'm looking at it I'm going no you can't do that you you know you can't have a male's voice as the propulsion for the story about a female wow so I had to go back and rethink you know uh, my approach to the to the entire project wow um how about with like Black Black Klansman? By the way, I I don't think I've ever been as aware of a score mm. as I was watching that movie. And I and I saw it with Pete, mm-hmm. but I also saw it two other times in in a period of three weeks. I, mm-hmm. No, two weeks. I just kept going back to see it again. Mm. It and it was as powerful the third time as it was the first, mm. maybe more so. Mm. But the score, I was aware of the score mm-hmm. in the best possible way, mm-hmm. not not Thank as a distraction you. at sure. all, Thank but you. it just so drove that movie for me. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. It was, it was that film was a unique moment in time. 
because Spike came to me and he said, hey, man, I think I want an R&B band to be, you know, the driving sound and the score. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, cool. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm all for that. And um, when I got the idea to, to uh, use Jimi Hendrix as inspiration for the thing, it kind of, everything else just started to fall into place. Because I kept saying, at first I was just going to use orchestra. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when John David comes in at the opening scene, you know, with those jeans on, the leather jacket, and he the says, hair. The hair. <laughs> yes. The hair. It was yeah, perfect. Yeah. Oh, and and I can, as you said <laughs> yeah. that with Hendrix, I can hear that yeah. guitar bend in my yeah. ear, which I don't remember the score to any oh, yeah. movie. Well, look, but listen, I, as, soon as, as soon as I saw that, I thought about Hendrix doing the national anthem. Mm. And, and it was interesting because I thought it was so appropriate because for me, I remember as a kid hearing him do that, that just felt like he was screaming to the rest of the country, like, we're Americans too. You know, because I, I remember guys coming back with their, with their military mm-hmm. jackets from Vietnam and, mm-hmm. you know, being in that struggle. And it seemed like he was saying, listen, we deserve all of the rights and protections just as much as anybody else because we fought for this country. Just like anybody else, so that's when I said, you know what? Okay, we're gonna we're gonna do this. We're gonna use this guitar as the driving force behind the score. I love that. I, I, I you're younger than I am, but I, I remember <coughs> Hendrix playing that at Woodstock, and mm-hmm. I, I was on my way and never got there. But mm-hmm. but watching that performance mm-hmm. the, from the movie, it, um, he's my favorite guitar player of all time, and, oh, and I got to. It, we had Mike Finnegan on recently. Mike played oh, yeah. on oh, Still yeah. Raining, Still Dream. He oh, yeah. played on Electric Ladyland. Are you kidding me yeah. or what? Yeah. I mean, yeah. oh my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, I mean, first, first of all, I've always thought Jimi Hendrix was a genius. Even with my electric band, the E-Collective, we have a tune mm-hmm. on the live album that I wrote for him. It's called Dear Jimmy. You know, because I have to listen to that. Yeah, you have to you have to check it out because, and it's a ballad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but the thing about it is, when you would listen to Jimi Hendrix, you will forget that sometimes there were just three guys playing. Oh, totally. Yeah, completely. And then the arrangements were just like well beyond their time. Mm-hmm. Well beyond Absolutely. their time. So did you? Li- okay, so I want to talk about that because I'm a little intimidated about the whole jazz thing. I I, mm. I feel like. Um, Me too. No, so I'm, no, I'm serious. I, I, I feel very inept in the... To, somebody was giving sending me notes about things I should talk to you about and about jazz. I can't okay. talk to you about jazz. Okay. Jazz is not... I, I mean, I, I have an appreciation now, mm-hmm. but it's way, it's way over my head. Okay. But okay. every musician I've ever interviewed has always had their heart and their soul in jazz. Mm-hmm. And Jimmy Vivino was telling me that all music is rooted from jazz. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he, that, yeah. that, that's mm-hmm. what he said, and he, mm-hmm. could, he could explain why. Sure. Um, but when you're a little kid and you're listening to music, I, I know you come from a family where mm-hmm. there was music in your house. Mm-hmm. I've, I've heard that. Yes. Your mm-hmm. father was an opera singer? Was he an opera singer? He was an amateur opera singer. My father loved opera. My mom's sister taught piano and voice. My grandfather played the guitar. So there was, it was a house where music was a very much a focal point of our daily life. Was it a specific, was it all, all genres of music? Was it a specific kind of music? No, it's mostly spiritually based music mm-hmm. and operatic based music and classical music. You know, so I was kind of like the black sheep of the family coming home talking about Miles Davis, John Coltrane, and Clifford. Okay, Miles. so where did you get that jazz appreciation? Because that's very sophisticated music. Well, I mean, just growing up in New Orleans, first mm-hmm. of all. And then, you know, I met Wynton Branford when I was in elementary school. 
And they told me about a, an arts high school called NOCA, which is the New Orleans Center for the Creative Arts. Mm -hmm. And then when I got there, man, I was introduced. I was introduced to Clifford Brown, Miles Davis, and the, the entire thing, you know, by, uh, from their dad, Ellis. Mm -hmm. And I was just intrigued. Back then, I was just intrigued about this. Cause Were you first playing all, music already? Yeah, I've been playing music since I was five years old. But you start on piano. Yeah, I start on piano. Then I picked up the trumpet fourth grade. Okay, and why, why did you pick up, I, I know the story, Al, but yeah. let's tell, why did you pick up the trumpet? Well, there was a guy named Alvin Alcorn who mm -hmm. came to my elementary school and gave a demonstration in New Orleans traditional music, man, and whenever I heard him play, I, I can see it right now, we were in the cafeteria at mm -hmm. Fourth Center. Of course. And, you know, we're sitting on the floor, we're, we're, we're elementary school kids, and I'm looking at man, and he seemed like a giant at the time, <laughs> and then when I became a grown-up, I was looking down <laughs> at him, you know. But when he played, you know, there was such a vibrato and a very kind of vocal-like quality to what he was doing. Mm -hmm. And I had been playing piano at the time. I said, piano can't do that. So I went home that day and I told my dad, I said, hey, dad, I want to play the trumpet. And my dad was like really pissed off because <laughs> he had just got me a piano <laughs> you know, at the house. Yeah, that was, that was a moment in time in my life. Uh, but, you know, going back to the thing about the jazz musicians, mm -hmm. the thing that was interesting about that to me was I was always a believer in the American dream. And I was, I was always, at that time, even though I was a young kid, mm -hmm. I grew up to believe that, you know, if you accomplished a goal, you would, you would, there would be recognition for you. Mm -hmm. So the thing about jazz that blew me away was there were these great musicians who could play in this incredible way that we didn't know about. They mm -hmm. weren't household names, mm -hmm. you know? How mm -hmm. come Charlie Parker wasn't a household name? Mm -hmm. Clifford Brown or any of those guys. Mm -hmm. So it really intrigued me, and it start, I started to feel like I was being kept away from something, you know? So I just put my whole life into that. So, you know, my kids, they make a joke about it, about how there's a whole period of, like, pop music that I'm not really familiar with. Okay, that's what I was going to ask you yeah. next. So did, so you didn't listen to that stuff at all? At the, for, for about three or four years, I didn't listen to any pop music. So, like, the Beatles were not in your... I mean, I got around to listening to it later on. Later, yeah. but I mean, <laughs> yeah, but when yeah. you're a little kid there, no, no you're not no. listening to that. No, 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 I was listening to some other things. Because I even was, as I a little intrigued. kid, you're listening to jazz. Well, no, it, it probably started. Well, in the, growing, up, growing up in New Orleans, you're going to hear it anyway. Hmm. But it probably started when I was about um, in sixth grade, sixth mm -hmm. or seventh grade, mm -hmm. you know, and then it just pro progressed from there because I was just like totally blown away. I heard Clifford Brown playing, I'm like, wait a minute, how come everybody doesn't know about this dude? Did you hear what he just did on his trumpet? I never heard anybody do that, and nobody's talking about it. It just mystified me. So it seems like you had a purpose early on. You were going to shine a light there. Yeah, and then uh, then then it also in in listening to John Coltrane, mm -hmm. it triggered something in me too about purpose because when I heard him play um, Alabama, which is a piece that he had written for the four little girls that were killed in Alabama. Mm -hmm. it, it made me weep. I cried, you know. And then when I listened to Max Roach, Freedom Now Sweet, mm -hmm. you know, I started to understand that there was, that, that these guys had a connection to their communities, mm -hmm. you know, and they were trying to make statements, social statements with mm -hmm. their music. Uh, <clears throat> and then all of a sudden, music took on a, a different purpose. And I shouldn't say different because it was kind of always there because I grew up in a church, mm -hmm. playing in a church. So for me, music always had some type of purpose. Did you sing? 
uh, for about five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> they had me in the choir for literally, I mean, maybe about one or two songs, and they said, that, doesn't he play that one? Yeah. Well, but I'm thinking, if you're playing trumpet, you, you, there's something going on there that... Oh, yeah, it yeah. was going on. It just wasn't going on with what everybody else was doing. <laughs> yeah, it was going on. Right? It yeah. was fun. Um, so, all right, so you weren't listening to popular... So were you political... Okay, you're a little younger than me, mm-hmm. but I grew up in the 60s, and yeah. I was marching on Washington when I was, oh, I don't really? know, 12 years old. Yeah, yeah I, it's nice, 68, I was marching. And um, so that you were too young for all of that stuff. Yeah, but still, but still, you got to remember, I was I came along in the 70s, mm-hmm. right after that. You know, James Brown said, loud and black and proud was the thing, you know. So we were very... Politically motivated. I mean, in the early seventies, we were marching about racism in the schools because yeah. they were trying to throw the throw away the books. They oh, were yeah. trying to throw away oh, the yeah. books. Oh no! And, and plus, I, I, like I told you, I remember a lot of guys in my neighborhood coming back, you know, with PTSD, mm-hmm. you know, and they would be wandering the streets, and it was it was a it was an interesting time. Yeah, so we were all uh, politically motivated. That's been a part of my life for the longest time. It's also it's a big part, part of your of life now. Life. Oh yeah. Well, I can't. I, I don't. I feel like I didn't cho- choose it. I feel like it chose me. Mm. You know, and that really kicked in after Hurricane Katrina. Okay, so let's talk about that. So your family, you're from New Orleans. Yes. Your fa- you were there at the time. Mm-hmm. What was that experience for you? Well, what happened was I was actually in LA because I was teaching at USC, and I mm-hmm. woke up that morning and I looked at the news and I said, you know what, I got to get home. I was supposed to teach. So I I flew home. You I, went there. Yeah, because oh. I had to get my family out of the out of the city. Wow. You know, because my wife is from D.C. and she mm-hmm. never really experienced a hurricane. And I said, you know what, we got to get out of here. So we packed up. I packed up the house and put the kids in the car, and along with some other friends, mm-hmm. we drove to Atlanta. But the thing that really got me motivated about it was after Atlanta, we realized we couldn't go home. So I had the apartment here. And uh, we came here mm-hmm. for a little bit, and it was rough. It was rough because we got here. As soon as we got here, we went and bought clothing for the kids and stocked the refrigerator at the apartment mm-hmm. that I had at the time. And next thing you know, the banking system went down. None of the credit cards worked. So we were really? lucky. Yeah, we were lucky for that. Uh-huh. And then afterwards, we couldn't get our kids in school. Every school that we had called in the neighborhood kept telling us stuff like, oh, we need to consult our lawyers, blah, 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 blah. What? Blah. So, so my agent at the mm-hmm. time, Sam Schwartz, who's still my agent now, Sam Schwartz called the school at the time, uh, Oakwood, mm-hmm. you know, and Margo was the uh, headmaster there. And she said, no, bring the kids here. And what happened was, at the time, Bush was on television mm-hmm. talking about everything that they were doing for the kids and mm-hmm. everything. And I was like, and I was saying to myself, no, this, that's, not, that's not what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I started to think about all of the people in New Orleans who look like me that were being called refugees. You know, and I go, that's an unfortunate term because they're not refugees. These people are trying to survive, you know. But it triggered something in me, like somebody has to speak up for them. Mm-hmm. Somebody has to say something. Getting goosebumps again. You know? So I, I was enraged, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I felt like wherever, wherever I went, I had to represent the people who were suffering in, in my hometown. Mm-hmm. It was the wildest thing to look on television and to see neighborhoods that I knew totally destroyed. And the other part of it too that was like really powerful for me was mm-hmm. we didn't have red or blue states then. When we were in Atlanta, I was, you know, getting my car service because I knew I was going to store it. 
uh, I was getting two cars. My car and a truck service with you know brakes and gas mm-hmm. and all of this stuff, oil changes and all of this stuff. And when I gave the guy at the uh, counter my credit card and my driver's license, he said, "You're from New Orleans." I said, "Yeah." And he went back and he went and talked to somebody, and he came back and gave me a receipt that says zero balance. And he said, we can't do much, but we can do this. Oh. And uh, it made me realize, we, we, we're humans, man. You know, we get caught up in this thing of like, who's left, who's right, who's conservative, who's progressive. No, but at the end of the day, man, we're, we're, we're all human beings. And that's one of the things we tend to forget. Mm. So it's another reason why I was trying to say, okay, well, I need to create music that kind of goes down this path of, talking about these issues. So that's when we came up with the album, A Tale of God's Will, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and it, things just kind of progressed from there. Yeah, we have to talk about that music too. So so you, your family lost their homes in, in Katrina? My mom lost her home. Um, we had to rebuild it. Um, it was a heartbreaking thing because I don't know how to explain it, but in New Orleans, New Orleans is surrounded by water. You have mm-hmm. the river on one side and you have the lake on the other side. So we used to live, well, my mom still lives mm-hmm. there, uh, near the lake. And when we were driving this way to the lake, we kept seeing water marks on houses that were 11 feet high, which meant that the water came this way. And as we're driving, my mom is saying, I hope nothing happened to my house. And that broke my heart because I had already been to the house that night before and I, cause I wasn't gonna be surprised on camera. Mm. So I went to the house and it's still one of the hardest things to to even deal with. I think about when I had to take my mom to that home. Uh, Spike, you know, we've been friends for a long time, mm-hmm. and when he shot that scene, he didn't come in the house. He couldn't. He couldn't. He stayed outside. And 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 as a matter of fact, I remember uh, when we started to edit the film mm-hmm. and put it together, and I was. We had already scored it and done everything. We had a screening in New York. Mm-hmm. And when we took a break, we were coming back in and we were getting ready to do the portion, or to view the portion of my mom and myself. Mm-hmm. And they all tried to console me and try to get me prepared. And I'm like, no, I'm okay. I've, I've been through the worst of it. You know, the worst of it is being there with, with right. my mom. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? This is just, and, and the wild part about that too, we were scoring inside man when when that happened. So Spike knew, usually flies me to New York. Mm-hmm. He told me, he said, no, you stay with your family. You stay in LA and I'm gonna come to you. And uh, when we actually actually went into the studio to record the music, I'm out there with the orchestra conducting, doing the tape. While I'm out there, Spike is talking to my mom, asking her, how was the house? Did anything happen? And she said, well, I haven't been in it yet. And then Spike goes, well, I wanna, is it okay if I, you know, tape you going into the house? And she just immediately <laughs> said yes. And I come in and Spike goes, we're going to film your mom going in the house. And I go, okay. <laughs> so later on, when we went back to the apartment, I told my mom, I said, I said, are you sure you really want to do that? I mean, there's going to be a lot of people. It's mm-hmm. a very private moment. And my mom said, you know, no, people have to see what we're going through, you know. And it's the reason why I wrote the tune on the album, Dear Mom, because uh, I didn't know, I, I was proud of her taking that approach and having that stance, 
And I didn't know how to say thank you to her, so I wrote a tune for her instead. And so you, we were talking about it before we went on the air that um, she lost all the photographs. That was a rough, that was the hardest thing. I mean, you know, I, I, I mean, it's funny because my aunt wound up having at least some of her photographs from her wedding and stuff like that. So, but some of the childhood photographs of her mm-hmm. and there was a photograph People don't know this, you know, but during my live show, I wear bracelets and I wear mm-hmm. I wear a wallet chain, mm-hmm. right? But that's in tribute to my dad, because my dad was always a conservative guy when I knew him. He was a church guy, sold insurance, mm-hmm. you know, he was, I thought he was a cornball, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And then I saw this picture of him when he was a younger dude, and he had this wallet chain, oh, no. pleated pants, and his sunglasses, wow. and his hair was slicked back, and I'm like... Who is that? Oh, wow. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so um, it's one of the reasons why, why I do that. And I lost all of those photos. That's the thing. And I, the thing that hurts is that my, my kids don't get a chance to see that mm-hmm. stuff. And there's no like extended family outside of New Orleans that might have any duplications of If that they stuff? do, they might. I, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. You know, because my dad was from Lafayette, Louisiana, mm-hmm. Lake Charles, in that area. And by the time he moved to New Orleans, you know, and the, I don't, I, I don't, I, he just didn't have interaction with the family in Lake Charles like that on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. So I don't think they'd have many photos. That's heartbreaking. It is. It is. Because it's, it's one of the things you want to pass down to your kids, especially, you know, when you look at your kid. For example, I have one photo and I, I put it up on my Facebook page years ago of my dad in a, in a singing group. It's mm-hmm. called the Harlem Harmony Kings, 1932. Uh, and when I look at the photo, it looks like me standing there. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> okay, so so yeah. let's talk about your dad. So opera, so he was, sing, he was singing opera. Yeah. And you have come to now write your second opera. Okay, so I, I, I don't even understand this. Me either. Did you listen to opera <laughs> when you were a kid? Were you listening to opera? I mean, inadvertently, I wasn't. It was, sitting, the, it was in the house. I wasn't sitting down listening to it, but you know, my dad would. Do you of, understand it? <laughs> <He's> like, <laughs> how, how do you understand opera? I don't even get this. <laughs> yeah, well, no, my dad would tell me the stories of Bob Carmen mm-hmm. and everything like that. But the main thing about it was, you know, he he loved the music, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes, you know, uh, he'd have. I always tell a story, and it's true. Whenever my dad would put those records on, you would hear doors slamming in the house. Because everybody was trying to find a place to be quiet. You know, it was like, oh, there he goes. You know? And he'd be in the would front of the Would he sing along? Oh, of oh, course. Yeah, of yeah. course. Mm-hmm. You know, and my dad would always say, boy, come and sit down. See, he said, now this is music. See, you need to listen to this. You need to learn this. You're out there doing all that other stuff, but you need to learn this stuff. And I just never really got into it at that point. I mean, I always appreciated it because I love melody. And, mm-hmm. you know, those melodies are beautiful and strong. So I... You know, obviously, the stuff you know seeped into my DNA, mm-hmm. uh, but it was so it was so weird to get a call from Opera Theater St. Louis. Okay, so how? Why did they come to? Why did that happen? It just goes to show you how you know having conversations with people can come back on you. So, <laughs> Be careful what you wish for. Yeah, kind of well, Gene Dobbs Bradford is a guy who runs the Jazz St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Years ago, when he was running this club uh he brought me in town and we were just talking getting to know each other i told him that my dad loved opera and i heard a lot of opera in the house mm-hmm. well mm-hmm. fast forward mm-hmm. 
to Gene Dobbs Bradford talking to Opera Theater St. Louis, they wanted to broaden their audience, so they were thinking about doing a jazz opera for kids. And Gene Dobbs Bradford said, well, I think I have the perfect guy, because this guy said his dad loved opera, he heard opera, and he writes for movies, and blah, 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 and they put my name up. And then it went from just a children's opera to being something they wanted to put on the main stage. Uh, and then and, you're like the first African-American yeah, composer. ever yeah. at the Metropolitan Opera. Yeah. That's a pretty cool credit right there. That's important. Yeah. That's important. You're doing important things. It's a, Well, it's an overwhelming thing, you, you know, because uh, it's. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine about this yesterday um, because um, his mom sang with my dad. And his mom is still alive. She's 98 years old. How long ago did your dad pass? Uh, he's been gone almost 20 years. Yeah. But he and, lived to see you be successful. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was interesting having a conversation with him because we were talking about this. We were talking about all of those African-American people in New Orleans who mm -hmm. loved classical music and were really a big part of that scene mm -hmm. in the city and never really got any recognition for it. And... And I said, dude, how, is, how ironic is it that I'm in this position now doing this stuff? I, you know, when I did my first opera, uh, Arthur Woodley, uh, one of the male leads in the opera, he knew the story of my dad. Mm -hmm. And at the premiere, when I went up for the curtain call, he grabbed me, and, and as, the, as the audience was applauding, he grabbed me and whispered in my ear, he said, you know, your dad is proud of you right now. And, I, and I, that blew me away. And then years later, now to have... Peter Gelb, who's a person that I worked with at, when I was at Columbia Records, actually Sony Records, mm -hmm. uh, have him call me and say, we want to you know, stage your, your opera. I, you know, I, it's one of those things you're kind of stunned for a second. You, you know, I go, okay, I guess. <laughs> okay, and then uh, I didn't know the other part of it until a journalist called me and uh, wanted to interview me. And about it and uh, he said you know that you're the first african-american i said no i didn't know that um and it still doesn't read it still didn't register until he posted the article and then the whole thing went viral mm -hmm. and then it hit me you know about the magnitude of what you did yeah well the magnitude of where where my career is in mm -hmm. as, as far as that is concerned you know the the interesting thing about it though is one of the things I've been saying is that, okay, I may be the first, but I'm not the first that was able or had the talent to do it. You know, that's the thing. There, there have been composers before me who have written operas mm -hmm. and, and had the uh, ability to write operas mm -hmm. that didn't get the chance to do it. Mm -hmm. So it's one of the, that's, things like that are the things that kind of make me work hard, mm -hmm. you know, because I'm, I'm kind of like the guy that I don't want to be the weak link in the chain. You know, well, I don't think that's ever going to be a problem. Well, we, you never know, but I, I, but I try to make sure that I'm not. I try to, you know, I'm, 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 I'm a little anal when it comes to certain things. Uh, I, okay, so I want to talk about um, your your work ethic, which uh, mm -hmm. I can't even imagine. Okay, so you're a little kid. What's practice? What is becoming a musician? What does that look, <laughs> What does that look like when you're a little kid? Obsession. Obsession. Yeah. Because, by choice, not hammered oh, into yeah. you? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, by choice. Because, because you love what you do and you're around other people. I grew up around Wynton Marcellus, Brantford, 
Donald Harrison. I Bradford grew up around, did one of my jams in New York back yeah, in the day. Yeah, so those yeah. are those are the guys that I grew up and I was the youngest, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I was always looking up to those guys mm-hmm. and you know, I knew that I wanted to do this. And So you're like thing, in a garage band with Wentworth? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, me and Branford were Brent, okay. Wentworth Wint was away at Tanglewood one summer. God. And yeah, we were yeah, we were playing <laughs> dances and, and I was the keyboard player in the band. It was it was hilarious. It was called the band was called the Creators. You know, hey guys, what's up? And what kind of music were you guys playing? We were playing all the dance music, all the music. We were playing all of the current hits and stuff mm-hmm. like that. You know, and it was a lot of fun. We had, we had I, it was a lot of fun for me because I didn't have to carry those keyboards. Nah. So did yeah. so did you appreciate popular music? Did you? oh yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, no, no listen, I. Funkadelics, Jimi Hendrix, Paul my Funkadelics, Mandrill, all of the pops. Mm-hmm. Those were all the people that I loved. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Uh, so okay, so you're a little kid. You're practicing by choice. You, are, yeah. are you a good student? How how's that going? How's school going for you? Yeah, I was a good student. Mm-hmm. I was. Yeah, they used to call me a brainiac. Mm-hmm. But you know, but listen, for me, I come from a family of educators. Mm-hmm. So there's there really wasn't much of a choice. Mm-hmm. You know because when I came home, I was always being checked on what I was doing, what was my homework, come in, let me see what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And then you think you would get a break going to another family member's house and like, no, <laughs> tell me about your school. And it's like, Jesus, man. So yeah. and so, did you get a teaching degree? I know you, you are an no. educator yourself now. Yeah. No, no, no. No, because I went to Rutgers. Mm-hmm. And when I went to Rutgers, I started playing with our Blakey my second year in school. And uh, I was 19 when I started playing with him, and I didn't obviously just didn't get a chance to finish school. Mm-hmm. But I've always studied, you know, even while I was playing with our Blakey. I had been studying composition since I was 16 years old. Mm-hmm. And then I switched from Roger Dickinson, who's the guy that I studied with in New Orleans. Roger told me about a guy in New York who was a great composer. His name was Hale Smith. Mm-hmm. And I studied with Hale Smith as well. So I, I, I'm, I'm the Thirsty type of person. Yeah, I'm always mm-hmm. trying to learn. You know, I, I, I always feel, and I've been taught this. It's just my trumpet teacher, Bill Fielder, always used to tell me. He said, "Always be gratified, never satisfied." That was a statement. Always be, always be, be gratified, gratified, never satisfied. Wow. Yeah. So he used to tell me that all the time. So those are like the little things that I've always been in. There was another in. quote that you said in an interview I heard today uh, mm-hmm. that somebody else said something about um, if you're good at what you do, successful fun. What, what is that? Oh, yeah. No, our Blakey, you know, always used to say to us, if you have something to offer, the world would be the path to your door. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what he said, you know, don't be bitter. He said, work at your craft. Have, make a statement. Have something to give back. So what is what what did that look like for you, and what does that look like for you now? So so you're, when you're growing up and you're you're a student and you're doing all that, what's your what what kind of time are you putting into your to to music? I'm putting a lot of time into it. I mean, my practice and you know, I, I would when I was in high school, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll never forget. I used to try to wake up in the morning and do my trumpet warm ups in the morning. Then I go to school and I eat my lunch real quick. And then run to the practice room and try to practice. <clears throat> and then they would bus us from my regional school to the arts high school that I went to. Mm-hmm. Have my music classes. And then after that, I try to practice before I had to go to like a rehearsal or something like that. And I go home, try to help do my homework, and then practice again. So that was kind of like the way. And, and that was your own self-imposed yeah, discipline. Yeah. And so when did, when did music start becoming 
Like, when did you start doing gigs? And oh, from the time I was about fifteen years old, I remember I was I was fourteen. I was I was I was playing with this dance band. Uh, I was fourteen years old. We were playing this club. And How'd you play a club? You can't. You're not even old enough to play hey, a club. Hey, <laughs> so we're, we're playing this club, and I'm one of the trumpet players in the band, man. And it was funny because uh, the guys. We took a break, and I'm all excited because all these grown women are walking around looking at me, going, "Look at him!" <laughs> and the guys in the band gave me a beer. They said, and they said, "Hey, don't drink it. You just hold it. It make you look older. Don't drink it though." Just I'm, I'm sitting there in this chair with this beer in my hand, and while the music is playing during the break, all of a sudden the music goes down to hit. Terrence Blanchard, your father's at the front. No! <laughs> oh my God, that was embarrassing. That was embarrassing. So. So let's talk about that. I mean, the, the world of jazz and music mm-hmm. and all of that and substances, yeah. that, that never called to you? No, I mean, you know, no, I, I mean, I drink now, mm-hmm. you know, but no, back then, no, because we we had this kind of... Uh, you were around it. We were always around it, but we had this, I don't want to say a mandate. It's not even a mm-hmm. mandate, but we kind of looked at it as being the thing that it, the reason that people used to not deal with musicians because they were drug addicts, because they were this, because they were that, knowing that that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. But our thing was, we're not trying to give anybody any extra reason mm-hmm. to look at us negatively. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If you look at what where we were back then, we always tried to dress a certain way. Mm-hmm. We always spoke a certain way. We tried to come off. A certain way. Whenever we did the interviews, we were mm-hmm. never trying to go duh, uh, none of that stuff, because we were trying to set the table. Because we knew that these musicians were great musicians, mm-hmm. right? They were geniuses, but given any little crack, the negativity was the thing that was focused on. Mm-hmm. So we tried to make sure there would be nothing, none of that stuff to focus on. You know, Where did I, you learn I, that ethic? Did you did you did your father instill that? Did oh, your parents instill that in you? Oh, everybody. Mm-hmm. My father, the church, the mm-hmm. school, everybody. You know, my father. You know, when I would be on my way out to a gig, he'd grab me. Hey, man, don't let nobody make you do this or do anything like that. You know, I used to hear that all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, and then part of it was just me too. You know, just your own like sensibility. Yeah, because mm-hmm. I, my, I, I had a, I felt like. I had a sense of pride about this lineage that I was becoming a part of, mm-hmm. you know, and while these musicians that came in front of me were brilliant musicians, you know, we noticed that people weren't focusing on their brilliance. They mm-hmm. were focusing on this one little thing that everybody was doing, mm-hmm. you know, and it wasn't just them, mm-hmm. but for them, it was a thing that would used to, to, to focus negative attention towards. So we tried to eliminate as much of that as possible. Now, today is a different day. You know, those kind of biases, you know, they're biases that still exist, mm-hmm. obviously, you know, but that stuff is not the thing that people focus on, you know, with jazz musicians mm-hmm. because there's a lot of other things to talk about. There's a lot of other things to deal with. And when did you, so when did you start, like, making a living? Like, how did how did you segue into being a professional musician that that's your like I imagine you never had a plan B no I didn't believe in plan B's I don't believe in plan B did you ever have like a job job did you ever have to do a job job no okay that's pretty you're one of the only musicians I've ever spoken to that never had to do a job job (laughs) that's pretty cool right there no no. 
Well, uh, but I, I started making money when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. You know, I would play gigs. I'd get called for certain gigs for, you know, those those big band gigs, those society gigs where you have to sit on and read. There was a big band at the uh, Blue Note Hotel, Dixter Beals Big Band. Those trumpet players, I knew all of those guys, and when some of those guys couldn't make the gig, they called me to come in and sub for them, so I would go in and do that. And then, as soon as I left uh, to go to uh, college, I went to Rutgers University. Mm-hmm. The guy who was directing the band played in Lionel Hampton's big band. So, I got to school two weeks early, and they didn't have any housing for me. So, I stayed with him, and mm-hmm. he took me on one of Lionel Hampton's gigs and told me to bring my horn. And I'm riding on the bus with some of the guys, and we're talking about trumpet stuff. So we get to the site, and they ask me to pull out my horn to hear me play. And Lionel Hampton walks up behind me while that's going on. And uh, he goes, hey, he called everybody champ. He said, hey, champ, let me hear you play blues with the piano player. So he heard me play, and then he said, I'm going to call you for some gigs. And the next week, I was on the road with Lionel Hampton. That is just crazy. Yeah, so I was playing with him when I was 18 years old. Wow. And so, uh, wh- how did how did the playing segue? Okay, when did you win your first award? Uh, okay, are you a composer before or after you start? It was all during. Everything's <clears throat> happening simultaneously. Everything's happening, yeah, because uh, I, I always had a fascination for how music was put together. Had you written songs before you became yeah. a composer? Well, no. Well, which is, it's hard to say because... I started compo- I started composing when I was 15, 16 years old. What? Yeah, my, trump- my, my composition teacher, Roger Dickinson, had me write a six-note piano concerto that I lost in the hurricane. Uh, uh, I called it Fantasy in Space. <laughs> I don't know why, but that was the, that was the title of it. Uh, I'd written that when I was 16 years old. So I was always writing, you know, along with playing. So it's kind of hard to say which one came first. Okay, I did not know. Okay, so this is interesting. So how did your first composing gig happen? Well, when I left Lionel Hampton's band, uh, I had already done like some big, big band arrangements for like high school. I remember I, won the, I had done this big band arrangement of Rocky <laughs> when I was in high school. Yeah, it was, nice. it was hilarious, you know. Marinelle Ferguson had done it. So I said, well, man, you know, let me, I'm going to try to do so I did this thing and written it out for the big band and we went to this competition and they created a category because they didn't have a they didn't have a, an arranging category, you know. Wow. So they created So you a won category. your first yeah. award. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I, I like about, it, I about, like it. Yeah, fifteen years um, old. So uh, okay, so so what's your first film comp- okay, so now I all right, so yeah. you meet from what I understand, mm-hmm. you were doing a set. You you were a session player yes. on, with Spike for, yes. at first, right? Uh-huh. And so, how did that become a relationship? Uh, well, from the first session, because I walked in with my Lakers gear yeah. on, and yeah, he was a little upset about that, you know. But that's all right. Hey, man, they were the champs. You know, you got to take the title, baby. You know and you so, didn't know at the time that that's I, no, I had no, I had no idea. We were talking about no this idea. before we went on the air. Yeah, Spike yeah. is so loyal about the Knicks and also uh, about NYU. My daughter uh, goes to NYU, and when we went to the screening, as soon as he found out, she she went right for her and he yeah. started talking to her in total earnest. Yeah, yeah, about so, it. Right. So I mean, yeah, and he's always been loyal. So he remembered me from that, mm-hmm. and then uh, we were doing more better blues, and uh, we were doing the pre-recorded music for the band to sing to. And uh, we took a break. And when I sat down to play, I was working on some music for my 
upcoming album mm-hmm. with Columbia Records, a uh, solo project. And I was sitting at the piano playing a tune that I'd written for these kids that were Mexican in, in uh, South Africa. It was called Sing Soweto. And Spike heard it. And when he heard it, he goes, man, I love that. He said, well, what is it? I told him what it was. He says, can we use it in the in Mo Better Blues? And I said, sure. He said, so we just recorded it, just me playing a melody. No accompaniment or anything mm-hmm. like that. And they shot the scene with Denzel on the bridge. And when after Spike shot the scene, he called me up and he says, hey, man, you think you could write a string arrangement for it? You know? And I said, sure. That's a string arrangement. <laughs> Uh, but I called uh, my composition teacher, Roger, told them about it. and uh, Is this the first thing you're orchestrating? or had yeah. you? Yeah. No, I never, okay. I'd never written for orchestra before. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did the arrangement and, and brought it in. And uh, what was so funny was I brought it in and I handed the music to Spike's dad. And Spike's dad goes, no, you wrote it, you conducted it. I went, damn, okay. Wow. So luckily, I had taken some sight singing classes. So I knew what one, two, three, four, <laughs> I knew what that was. This hand didn't have any responsibility, <laughs> so uh, it was pretty embarrassing. But I mean, we got through it, and then uh, Spike came up to me afterwards, and he said, uh, "You know, you got a future in this business." And I went, "Oh, I thought he was just encouraging me, you know." And I said, "Oh, thank you, man." But then he called me to do Jungle Fever, you know. And then uh, rest, as they say, is history. And so, do you guys have? Uh a conver- what's what's it like when, when when you're starting a project? So mm-hmm. he gives you a script right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. You don't really start writing because it's by no, filming. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so once it's filmed, you go in. How, what's what's the process? How long is that process for you? <laughs> um, it it it, it, dep- it a lot of it depends on his shooting schedule because mm-hmm. he'll call me before he starts to shoot and he'll give me the script and I'll go through it. Um, and it, it varies. Like with uh, uh, Miracle of St. Anna, mm-hmm. uh, what was really cool about that, they were shooting in Italy, mm-hmm. but he would send me like still photos from the set. So I, I used those still photos as like my screensaver on my computer. And I started getting inspiration from that, so I would start to write from that. But a lot of times I try to wait on Spike because I remember, I forgot that, I think it was Summer Sam. There was there were some scenes in that man. I was I was trying to write before, and I remember there was one scene I I had read the dialogue. It was with Marisol Vino and John Leguizamo, mm-hmm. where they were coming from Studio Fifty Four and they got into an argument. But in the scene, Spike shoots the empty chair of the car mm-hmm. where Marisol Vino gets out of the car, and it just threw me for a loop. I went, well, that visual triggered something else musically in me. So I said, you know what? I can't, I got to learn how to wait on Spike because what I realize is when I read his scripts, mm-hmm. that's my movie that I'm seeing in my brain, you know, and I have and to... And your movie is different than his than movie. His, yeah, because the pacing is different, the visuals are different. It's interesting that you brought that one up. My brother went to school with David Berkowitz in the Bronx. Yeah, that um, serious. And uh, Michael like? Perioli, who wrote the screenplay, is a friend of mine who... Uh, no, who wrote okay. Yeah, but we lived in the Bronx and, okay. and Columbus High School and David Berkowitz was one year ahead and... Wow. Yeah. Did you know it? Did you I did not. I, okay. I, I'm a little younger and okay. I went to... My parents were divorced. So I went to high school in Queens. But okay. yeah, my brother went to high school with him. Crazy. Um, that 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 movie was insane. That's such a great movie. It is. I, I think one of my favorite scenes in that movie is when I think it's Yogi Berra. Uh, he's calling the baseball game, mm-hmm. and as he's calling the baseball game, it's actually calling what you're seeing on the screen. 
you know, there's a woman who comes out and David is walking mm-hmm. up and then he yeah. goes, oh, swing and a miss. And the woman walks back inside. Yeah. I have to watch that again now that you yeah. said that. Wow, that's intense. Um, uh, so... And then and and so then you worked with my friend Mike Binder. Well, oh, so yeah, black yeah, or yeah, white. Yeah. So yeah, so yeah. what was that? What what's it like working with Mike? Hi Mike. What's up, Mike? <laughs> I love Mike. Mike. No, he's a good dude, man. He's funny as hell. Uh, you know, it's listen. When you work with guys who are really good at their job, mm-hmm. it's easy. It's easy. Is it? You know, there's 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 nothing to it. One of the things about working with him was, mm-hmm. you know, he knew he put together a good movie. He knew he understood what he did. He understood stood what I did. Did he leave you be to do your thing? Part, you know, uh-huh. I, I come up, did he have ideas? Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm, of course. Mm-hmm. You know, I would come up with some ideas, I'd play them for him. He'd say, Hey man, I like this. I think it should be this and blah 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And that was it was it was an easy thing to work, uh, easy time working with him. And mm-hmm. then when we got into the studio, yeah I'm gonna tell that story, Mike. <laughs> uh, we got into the studio, it's he's one of those directors that doesn't really let on how much he knows about music. Oh. Yeah, yeah. But but it comes across because we're sitting there, you know, listening to one of the playbacks and he goes, hey man, those string players are out of tune. And I went, yeah. Hey. <laughs> what do you do about that? No, hey, they're out of tune. I went out and said, hey, you guys need to tune up. <laughs> you know? How can like professional musicians that are doing that be out of tune? Uh, that happens, huh? Yeah. It happens. So have um, I'm assuming there's been other experiences where the directors didn't know so much what they were doing that weren't as fun? Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I've worked with other directors that think they know about music and they will do some things that you just go, okay. But, you know, the interesting thing, that that's only happened to me about once or twice. Did you and, ever feel like walking? Well, yeah, mm-hmm. of course. But the interesting thing about those directors, I don't see them around. Really? No, they're not around. Mm-hmm. No, as a matter of fact, after those projects, they were not around. Yeah. What? What? As a as a movie goer, can you think of any scores that really impacted you? Like, cause I Shawshank I, Redemption. Oh God. Okay, Pete. Thomas Newman. Thomas. Oh yeah. Pete was in Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. <laughs> I worked. I worked at it for two months, naked in the shower. Hey. Next to Tim. That's me. <laughs> When you walked in, dude. That's okay. When I okay. In. Okay. You know what's my favorite scene musically in there? Yeah. I mean, it's a sad scene, but when Jack Whittemore hangs himself. Yeah. That musical cue there yeah. is like amazing. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. I was obsessed with that score for the longest. As a matter of fact, I had to try to get away from it, you know, because I kept trying. I'm like, you were impacted. It was oh, affecting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. Yeah, and one of the things about the other thing about that movie to me. It's one of the one of the great American movies of mm-hmm. all time, and I always think about what was the pitch to get it made. Could the, can you imagine somebody trying to pitch that movie today? <laughs> oh yeah, I want to do a movie about this dude in jail, <laughs> you know. And it's not one of the typical like type of jail movies. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a really great movie, man. That's oh, one it's of my, a great movie. That's so funny. Pete just went back for the fiftieth was twenty fifth anniversary. Twenty fifth. Twenty fifth. Yeah, three day event, thirty thousand people. The director was there, and he was talking about Rob Reiner uh-huh. absolutely wanted to direct it. Wow. With, I think, Brad Pitt. Oh, really? And, like, it was crazy, the cast they wanted. It would have been probably great, but a different yeah, movie. Different movie, yeah. yeah. No, I think Tim Robbins, and it was, oh, that was... No, yeah, it was amazing. Rob Bonfiglio, why do you keep saying what? Rob is um, uh, in uh, plays with Brian Wilson. 
But he he keeps saying what he, to everything you say. He's going what what, and I don't know why he keeps saying what. Because he's totally out of his skin into this interview. Oh, oh okay. that's so okay. cool. Okay. Um, and you have a couple of questions, which will will sure. will which will. Did somebody somebody had a question? Yeah, there's a couple of questions. Okay, let's okay. let's have him, Pete. All right, let's see. Uh, let me see. Uh, I want to let's see. This is actually Rob. I want to hear about his time with Art Blakely. Oh man, that was. Playing with our Blakey was probably the thing that kind of set me up for the rest of my life. How so? Well, I was I always tell people I was with him for four years, but I felt like I aged forty <laughs> because you know there was no time for development. You had to. It was like you go from being, you know, in the NCAA to being in the pros, and. There was no grace period. Did he mentor you through that? No. No, you just sink or swim. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. well, he mentored me in the way that he left me to my own devices mm-hmm. to figure it out. But what he did was, I always, I always describe being with our Blakey as like being on a table. As long as you're on this table, you can roam around and do whatever you want. But as soon as you get to the edge, he might go, hey, go back the other <laughs> direction. You know what I mean? <laughs> so he let us do a lot of things, man. And he mm-hmm. always would talk to us about professionalism. I remember one of the things he always used to say, he used to say, uh, you better practice because when you don't practice the first night of the show, you know it. The second night, the band knows and the third night, the audience knows it. Wow. You know, he was full of things like that. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I was telling, that we said earlier about if you have something to offer the world would be the path mm-hmm. to your door. I'm still waiting for them to be the path <laughs> to my door. <laughs> So yeah. Rob also wanted to know um, when we were talking about the uh, the Hendrix thing before uh, mm-hmm. the guitar player on the score was it Charles Altura? Charles Altura, who's a who's a guitarist in the E Collective, uh, the electric band that I have. Mm-hmm. Charles is phenomenal. I, I I can hear that riff right now in my yeah. head, and I can't say that about any other movie I've seen. He is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. This and plus he's he's like he's one of those guys. He's like a freak of nature, mm-hmm. you know. Like, he'll play the guitar, and then after the show, man, he'll sit down at the piano and play Chopin. Mm-hmm. Went to a jam session. We were in uh, Cuba, mm-hmm. and he went to a jam session, and he didn't play the jam session on guitar. He played it on the piano. Mm-hmm. No, he's just one of those type of dudes. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, he's, he's brilliant. He went to Stanford University. That's some serious stuff. Yeah, <laughs> not for music. Oh, like math or something? Anthropology. Whoa. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By the way, Rob yeah. Antiglio. Oh, there's his Trouble Again album. He, he's, a, he's a great uh, oh, songwriter yeah. himself. Okay. He's married to Carney Wilson. Oh, yeah. And cool. uh, so Brian's his father-in-law. But he, wow. um, but he's an unbelievable singer, and he's a great guitarist. So oh, wow. he's sitting here awing on you big time. He's fanning <laughs> on you big time. Like crazy. Hey, man, um, listen. I listen I'm, I'm fanning on Charles every night. Whenever we play, I just listen to this guy, and I go, wow. Some of the and I told and I told Charles I said Charles I said listen man I said you keep just keep doing what you're doing I said it ta- it's gonna take a while for people to really get it get to where you are because mm-hmm. he looks like a rock and roll dude you know what I mean but it, it, the way he plays is some otherworldly stuff he comes and he's and, and and he can play in any situation so now how did you put this band together okay let's talk about mm-hmm. let's roll back first Grammy award like what is that like. When you get when you get that recognition, doing what you love to do, it's it's an overwhelming thing. You know, I, it's one of those things where I never saw myself being at the Grammys. I never thought about that. Mm-hmm. But then when I was there, uh, it it was it blew me away. And you know, and it and it's in a weird way for me, 
I always go back to my kids. You know, I, I, it makes me proud that I'm doing something that my kids would probably be proud of. Yeah. You know, um, um, and do they appreciate jazz? Oh, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, my 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 son actually wrote a tune on my first E Collective record, and he did. Wow. He did the spoken word portions of it. He's a great songwriter in his own right. Wow. And my daughter, uh, Sydney. My son is named J. Ray Oliver. Uh, my my daughter. Oliver's your middle name, yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. and my daughter Sydney. She's a. Is she pian- Berkeley School? Is Berkeley she- School of Music? Very she's a great nice. Pianist and mm-hmm. uh, great producer and songwriter herself. Has actually gave us the title for our first E Collective record, Breathless. She's the one that came up with the title for that and another tune called Cosmic Warrior. And what is she? Is she a jazz pianist? No, she's writing songs. She, I mean, she can play jazz. She mm-hmm. does that, but that's not really what she. So what? She what has kind a band of... called Priestess. Yeah, so they're, they're getting ready to put out their first record. Nice. Yeah. And so, what? What? What would you call her? It's alternative. All yeah. right. Nice. Yeah. Okay. But this interesting thing about her because she wants to write, you know, songs and stuff, but she has ears like a jazz musician. Mm-hmm. She has like her ears are better than mine. She has phenomenal wow. ears. I remember when she was a kid, I come home and she was playing that piano piece for at least mm-hmm. with no music. And I'm going, I said, "How are you doing that?" And then she, she was playing it from here. Yeah, she was a little kid. Wow. Yeah, that's just the way she is. She doesn't tell anybody. She tries not to put it out there. If you, she'll never say it. She tries to act like it's not there, but she can really hear. Wow. Yeah, I'm in all her. <laughs> and so winning that first Grammy up until you won one this, this year with, yes. from that piece from Black Landsman, right? Mm-hmm. Um, does it still have that that thrill? Oh, of course. You know what was crazy about it? We found out while we were at the BAFTAs. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you also were nominated. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, uh, so now, okay, so Academy Award now. Come on. Academy Award nomination. No, that... well, well, okay, but I got to tell you, so, so this, I got to tell you about the bathroom thing. So, so as I was losing <laughs> to to Lady Gaga, right? Oh, we got to talk about that, Yeah, too. that's what's so funny. <laughs> and I didn't get a chance to tell her this, but, you know, as I was losing to Lady Gaga, mm-hmm. Somebody turned around and you just won <laughs> the Grammy. Oh my at the God. ceremony. That's for the fantastic. Yeah, it was crazy. It was funny. Well, that's that's a nice justice right there. Yeah, it was funny. So uh, we're going to talk about Lady Gaga in a minute. So mm-hmm. so where are you when you hear you you are nominated for an Academy Award? I was in Boston because uh, I was teaching at Berkeley College of Music, and mm-hmm. me and my daughter were sharing an apartment at the time. Sweet. Yeah, and uh, and. My wife called me and said, you got nominated. And I'm like, what? You know, and we videotaped us calling my mom. Because, you know, my mom, we have this joke with my mom. My mom, we always, my mom never gets really affected by anything. You know what I mean? But like, we always have this joke about, with my mom, Mom, I just became president of the United States. And she'd be like, that's nice. But listen, can you take my garbage out? <laughs> That's my mom, you know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Jay Leno has a very funny joke about he called his mom and said, "Mom, I'm on the cover of Time magazine." She goes, right. "I don't think we get that here." <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right, right. right. So when, when you know, we we videotaped it because I was thinking my mom was going to have a, a type of a certain type of reaction, mm-hmm. but she was really great. You know, mm-hmm. she said, "I've always," pr- I forgot what she said, but it, mm-hmm. but it became something really nice. And then actually, uh, my daughter jumped on my back. 
and videotaped that this guy got nominated for an Oscar and it wound up in the role with all of the Oscar reactions for the Oscars at the luncheon. Oh. Yeah. I don't know. I guess my wife sent it to him or something like that. But it, was, it was cute. And so what was that like going there that day? What was that whole experience like? It was an amazing experience. Because that's know, like a it, whole different it thing. It is. It is. It's very different. And I wasn't. I didn't know what to expect. Mm-hmm. But I loved every moment of it mm-hmm. because everybody was so, so nice and so mm-hmm. gracious. And even the guys in my category, we were all like rooting for each other. We were hanging out at all of the events right, together, right. you know. Mm-hmm. And it's just like really strange because you're at these things and you're hanging out with these actors and actresses and everybody's just cool. You know, there's no pretense. Okay, now this is a really weird thing to admit, but I can't... Was it was it Stars Born that one? What one? Uh, for the score? Yeah. Uh, Black Panther. Black Panther. Okay. Yeah. But here, but 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 here's a here's a the 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 other thing about it too. It's like being in that environment. It's you get to the point where okay, you know, there's the award, mm-hmm. right? But that's not the thing that you really start to focus on mm-hmm. while, while you're going to all of these events. Mm-hmm. You know, you start to feel this camaraderie mm-hmm. amongst all the other people. And the thing that I was, like, really focusing on was, and people can correct me if I'm wrong, but just in terms of race and gender, mm-hmm. I think that was probably the, one of the most diverse classes Across Oscar, the board. In Oscar history. I think that's true. Yeah. I so, because when we went to the luncheon and they started to call all these names and you saw all these women coming up, mm-hmm. and I'm like, wow, this is awesome. I was standing next to Regina King, mm-hmm. you know, doing that doing the, for the luncheon. It was, a, it was an amazing experience. Yeah. I, um, that's very exciting. And, and mm-hmm. I think that. I think your score is going to stand the test of time for a very, very long thank you, time. Thank you that is that. just I, I cannot think of that movie for one second without hearing your music. Well, thank, you. thank you. And I, I real except Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind, I wow. think of what I, and I right? No, but it's true. When yeah. I think of Gone with the Wind, I hear the music. When I think of the Wizard of Oz, I think of the music. Right. When I think of Black Plants, when I think of the music. And that wow. is a rare thing. Thank you. Thank you. That for is a really that. so is Harriet um uh what is it like when you come off so, because Black Klansman is so, was such an important yeah. movie on so many levels yeah. um, and then to move into another one um, what is, you, you can't just do a little comedy now <laughs> have you yeah. ever done a, have you ever done a little yeah. comedy yeah, yeah I have I've, I've done a few is that fun or oh, not com- oh comedies are fun yeah, yeah. definitely yeah um, but it's with, with going from that to Harriet you just have to kind of divorce yourself away from the prior thing. Mm-hmm. And Harriet's story is so powerful. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of envelops you by itself. And the other thing, too, is that with Casey and Cynthia and all of those veteran actors. Leslie Clark Odom Pe- Jr., I saw him in Hamilton. Oh! Clark <laughs> Peters, Vonda Curtis, all of those Fantastic cast. Yeah, Vanessa, Vanessa Bell Calloway, mm-hmm. you know. Um, when you see their performances, you kind of have like an oh shit moment. Mm. Like, you know, like don't be the weak link in the chain. You know what I mean? Because like everybody did their thing. And it becomes an inspiring thing to, to write music for because we were all trying to do this for Harriet. 
That was that was the thing that everybody talked about. I don't think we talked about it on the air. I think we were talking about it before about the timing of this and how important it is. Oh, it's extremely important. I mean, the timing of it couldn't couldn't be more important. I mean, given everything that's going on, things that are happening in our country, you know, the denial mm-hmm. about having her on the bill, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's incredible because when you think about what's going on in our country and you think about this woman and how she gave her life to do for others Mm -hmm. it's the most selfless thing anybody could ever do in their life that's why it's so important for our veterans Mm -hmm. for us to thank them because these guys are putting their lives on the line Mm -hmm. all the time you know so to have somebody like that not be recognized is a shame you for know, those of you who don't know the story, it's, I mean, other than the fact that she helped emancipate people, the extent to which she did it and the personal risk that she took, mm-hmm. a woman alone going back in there again and again and again. I mean, and also the empowerment for women is just extraordinary. Oh, and here's the thing about it, too. Um, there's one of the shots in the film was one of my favorites is when she's walking in that very expansive field mm-hmm. and you see this little diminutive woman walking across mm-hmm. the field. You know, I, I've been saying, you know, it's, 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 you try not to make light of it, but it's the perfect embodiment of it's not the size of the dog in the fight, it's mm-hmm. the size of the fight in the dog. Oof. You know, and it, and we, we had a screening of it not too long ago, mm-hmm. and I was telling the audience, I said, the other thing that's like interesting being African American, like watching this movie, is like I've seen so many women in my family and friends that I grew up with. That, are, that seem to be direct descendants mm. of that strength and that power and that mm. resilience. You know mm. what I mean? And it's it was a beautiful thing to, to, to be a part of. Mm. You know, it's a beautiful thing to sit on a stage to watch the producers who are women, to watch the director who's a woman, the main character who's a woman. Fantastic. And watch them talk about what they did to bring this story to life. Mm. I'm just happy. I'm honored to be a part of it. So... What, uh, is there anything that you haven't done? You're working on a documentary now. We won't talk about that now, but that'll, that'll be out in some time. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you haven't yet done that calls to you? I haven't done an action film. Ooh. You know, being a trumpet Do you player. like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, of course. You watch those. You like those. Of course. Yeah. Not, you know, You're a guy. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Like watching things blow up. <laughs> <laughs> so like a block, but like a, a Marvel comic yeah, thing. Yeah, I've never done any of those things, you know. Yeah, and I mean, but think about—I'm a trumpet player, so you know. I remember the first time I heard Star Wars, I was like totally just amazed at all the trumpet fanfares in in the film. Mm-hmm. I remember watching it, going I, I, for for a minute I couldn't watch the movie. You know, I'm sitting. I, I remember I was in Chicago. I'll mm-hmm. never forget this. I I was playing with our Blakey. You know, and I go to the film, and I'm like, who the hell wrote this? You know, and so, yeah, so to get a chance to do those types of things. By the way, there's an entire album, and it's um, it's all orchestrated, the music, but it's a disco. Get out. Are you serious? Yeah. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I have to hear that. I have to hear that. Um, I see Rob's asking if you live in town. Part, do, do you still uh, keep a home in New Orleans? Do you yeah, know? I still have my home in New Orleans. Um, yeah. 
But yeah, we're we're we are at Terrence's actually right now, yeah. and it only took an hour and forty five minutes for me to get here. It literally took oh my God. The, the last oh my half God. of a mile you took know, eleven you know, minutes. You know what's so funny about you saying that? So I just moved here in June, in June mm-hmm. and it's been funny because you know we're living in an apartment now, but we're looking for a place, and we just found a place. And while oh, we nice. were looking, everybody's everybody's asking, "So where are you looking? Where are you looking? You got to think about the traffic now." And I'm like, "Man, please." But now I see what No, it's th- this. You live in, it's a yeah. clusterfuck to get to this place. Oh my God, it was a nightmare. It yeah. li- I, I, yeah. I made one wrong turn getting off the, the 405 and it said, yeah. uh, it will now take you 14 minutes to that go is. one mile. Oh yeah, and look, well, it, took, it took me an hour and a half to get here because oh. I was on, I was some other place at five and it's crazy. Like, and I literally got on the 110, and mm-hmm. it was just a parking lot. Yeah. And I didn't know where I was going. I said, but I'm not going to sit here. So I just got off the highway. Oh, really? Yeah, and I just turned on the maps, and I just listened to that little woman's voice yeah. tell me where to go. Yeah, well, Waze literally had me going, right, left, right, right. left, right. Yeah, just to, like, try to avoid the traffic. Yeah, crazy. Um, do we have any more questions, Pete? We do. Okay, let's go. All right, let's see. We have... Uh, let's I see. Oh, Veronica. Yeah. Oh, actually, Verona Towns would like to know any new projects coming up. Yeah. Uh, well, we just finished Spike's next movie. That's uh, part of one of the things that I was working on today. Can you tell us anything about it? Well, it's, it's called The Five Bloods. It's about, a, it's about four uh, Vietnam veterans who go back to pick up the remains of one of their fallen brothers. Mm. Stars Chadwick Boseman, uh, Delroy Lindo, Isaiah Whitlock, uh, Clark Peters, uh, and Norm, uh, I can't think of Norm's last name right now, but it's, it's a, it's, he did it again. It's a phenomenal movie. Working on that, uh, I have a TV show. That I was going to ask you about this. Yes. Is this your first TV? Do you do TV? No, 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 no. no. I've, I've done TV before. I had a series a few years ago called Shots Fired for Fox that, that was really a good show. Um, how, how do you feel, how does that measure up? How does it measure up doing? It, it's 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 a different beast because it's episodic, mm-hmm. you know, and you got to work real quick. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's still fun. Do you, you like know? it? Oh, yeah. I love it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, love, I always love challenges like that, you know. Mm-hmm. And this next piece, this next one that I'm going to do, there's some challenges because it's a period piece, but we don't want period music per se, you know. So, is it network or? Uh, yeah, no. It's like the Netflixy, Amazony kind of thing. Uh, no, it's, it's network. It's network. Okay. It's network. Okay. But 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 you know what I want to do is I want to do some exploration in terms of sampling acoustic instruments, but not using them hmm. in the normal way. You know to create these sonic palettes. So let's see what happens. I like it. Yeah. And and you play out. You still gig and oh, so yeah. okay. So I see on I'm your. I'm gonna be in St. Louis next week. Okay, tell us where, where are you gonna be? I'm gonna be at the Jazz Bistro. Okay. Yeah, next week. Um, so three days ago, you're, mm-hmm. I, I see this video on your Facebook, and there you are with <laughs> Lady Gaga. Just you and Lady Gaga alone. Okay, I thought it was a stage. It wasn't a stage. No. What what happened? Well, during the Oscar luncheon, mm-hmm. she was seated at my table, and uh, we were introduced, and she says, "Oh, you're a jazz musician." I said, "Yeah." She said, oh, I do a show, I do a jazz show, I do music at Dine in Washington. I'm like, what? Okay, and then we just kind of connected from there, and we just, just, she said, I gotta have you come on. I'm like, okay. I didn't think nothing of it. And then Laura Cartman, who's one of the governors, 
had the dinner for the actors and the musicians mm-hmm. who were nominated because Lady Gaga was in both categories. Right. So we're at this dinner at someone's house. Herbie Hancock showed up and Herbie started to play. Nick Patel had played earlier and Mark Shaman had played. And then Herbie got up to play and I had my horn and so Herbie said, man, let's play together. So we wound up playing together. And with Herbie, you never know where he's gonna go. So I had my eyes closed, concentrating on what he was playing because uh-huh. he could go a lot of different directions. And I opened my eyes and I said, man, I know I've been drinking, but I must be drunk. And that looks like Lady Gaga grooving in what we're doing. And sure enough, it was her. And next thing I know, she sang three songs with us. Oh. And then she said, you know. Did anybody record that? No. No. Not even no okay. recordings. Okay. No. Um, but um, she said, yeah, we got to have you come out and do the show. And man, I forgot about it, but they had been talking to my agent, you know, for months about mm-hmm. setting it up. And they were really nice, really gracious. I got there, uh, Brian McCollum, who's the guy who runs the, the band, does all of the arrangements, Michael Bearden, who's a, who's a musical director. Those, those guys were great, man. And then she came out and we had an amazing time during the show that we went to Brian's show, which was at a club mm-hmm. in the MGM. And we stayed there, we hung out till four o'clock in the morning, <laughs> you know, playing music and having a good time. And some of those photos, that's, that's from the, the late night show. But so the, the video that I saw, it's just you and Lady Gaga yeah. up there. She's like holding the mic while you're playing yeah, and she's yeah, grooving yeah. while you're playing. Yeah, and yeah. No, she was, no, she, listen, man, she is a phenomenal talent. She's you an know? incredible musician. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, she's got the goods. She's, and, and, and she's a really a great person. Mm-hmm. You know, she's really, really cool people. You know what I mean? Forget all of the, the, the fame and all of that other stuff when it was just us in the room. You know, she was she was gracious to my daughter. That's my, so lovely. My daughter's birthday was uh, my actually it's tomorrow, mm-hmm. but it would be considered that her birthday weekend. My niece, who was there, it was her birthday too. So and when we finished, when we were in that back room just hanging out, she sang happy birthday to both of us. You know what I mean? She was she's she's a lovely person mm-hmm. and a lover to death. That's. Could you see yourselves doing something together? <laughs> It's being talked about, I bet, isn't it, though? <laughs> I love that. I'm not saying anything. All right. <laughs> yeah. All right. You're not saying anything. You got another question, uh, Well, shout out from uh, Mark Ribbons in Cleveland. He's a radio host at The Wave. Interviewed oh, yeah. you a couple times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's up, Mark? Uh, let's see. We got Alvino Bennett watching. I love you, Alvino. And uh, Marcus <laughs> Eaton is watching as well. Okay. Marcus is the one who did the score for the David Crosby oh, okay. uh, that I was yeah. telling you about. Yeah, yeah. I don't and, remember and my name. Rob was asking, how was uh, Margaru Miller? <sighs> Margaru Miller was my spiritual brother. Mm. Margaru Miller was one of those guys that uh, he helped change my life. Mm. When how I was, so? Well, when I was playing with Rob Blakey, he introduced me to Paramahansa Yoga Monday. Mm-hmm. and self-realization mm-hmm. and uh, he used to say hey man I would, I would ask him kind of all these questions about what he was doing because I knew he meditated all the time and he told me about the book Autobiography of a Yogi mm-hmm. and uh, I got the book and I started to read it and we were just close and we were the type of close where it was funny man we, you know we come off the road to, and he would go he said uh because, you know, we both were married and had kids. And, you know, 
he would say, Terrence, I love you, but I won't see you. Because we've been on the road together for, <laughs> for like 10 weeks. He'd say, I love you, man, but don't call my house. You know what I mean? Because we both were like rec- recluses. We mm. like staying at home. Mm. And uh, he was also the type of dude, when I started, when, when our careers went in different directions, mm-hmm. he was the type of dude, I probably wouldn't have seen him for maybe a year or two. But once I saw him, it's like we picked up right where we left off. Mm. You know? And he, when he passed away, man, it, it really, it, it was, it, it really took a chunk out of my life, mm-hmm. you know, just, just knowing that he was on a planet someplace was like a comfort because mm-hmm. he was that guy that never had a bad word about anybody. Mm-hmm. He was a very special person and he was a great musician, mm-hmm. you know, at the same time. And he was my big brother, man. And I'm, I miss him all the time. There's a, there's a, a website devoted to him and. Sometimes when I see people post things, man, it just brings back so many memories uh, about Brood. And he was from, you know, he was from Greenwood, Mississippi, mm-hmm. little country boy, just like me, being from New Orleans, being from Louisiana. But he had big aspirations, and he accomplished a lot of things being a great musician. Do you have a spiritual practice? Yeah, I'm a Buddhist. I became mm-hmm. a Buddhist after I was on tour with Herbie. Mm-hmm. You know, I chant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well. Um... I am. I'm in awe. I'm in awe. I'm, I'm, I'm really. Um, you do important things. You do important. You do a lot of uh, incredible work with important things, and that's very inspiring. Well, thank you. And um, and your work ethic is extraordinary, and your output is is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, two movies going on now, and you got um, you, your band, and you've got all this stuff going on, and mm-hmm. and um, what what gives you? Is there something that gives you like the most joy, like in the moment when you're doing it? Oh, when I'm teaching and the light bulb goes off. Mm-hmm. You, when you see that in your students, it's it's that moment. It's like that. Oh wow, I can do that. You know, I love that moment because it's like that's what happened to me. You know, it's like those guys. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't tell you this earlier, but see, I had great music teachers. I started studying piano when I was five years old. Mm-hmm. My piano teacher was named Martha Francis. She lived right in the, we lived in a double. She lived in the other side behind us so I could never miss a lesson. <laughs> My next piano teacher, her name was Louise Winchester. Mm-hmm. From the time that I was 12 years old, she used to sit me down and teach me theory and make me do ear training classes, or ear training lessons mm-hmm. with her. And then sometimes she would have like, three or four, four of us together, and we would have ear training tests when I was 12 years old. Wow. And then I ran into Roger when I was 15 and 16, and things kind of progressed from there. So teaching and education is like a big thing for me because I know what it's done for me in my life, you know? Do you mentor? Do yeah. You? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I try to. I mean, there are people that I'm always trying to inspire and I talk to. And they're, listen, there's some grown-ups that I keep in touch with you know, on online and through my phone, and mm-hmm. we're always talking about things. You know, because I believe it's important because this isn't there's nothing to hoard. Mm-hmm. You know, there's I mean? enough for everybody. It's an yeah, abundant universe. It's a very abundant universe, mm-hmm. and and the thing is, the more you give, the more you learn. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one of the things that I love about teaching. Man, you know, I could I can teach these kids, you know, the techniques that I use to to create music. And it always blows me away how they come up with something totally different. Mm. You know, and it and it just it proves the point about what we were just talking about. 
there's room for everybody mm -hmm. out here. So there's no need to, to cover things or have an ego about things or think that you need to shield yourself away from things to, to protect your whatever your position is. It's all bullshit. It's BS, you know. Have you ever been able to put a hand, like, take a student and put them in something, giving them... Oh, are you kidding? I mean, <laughs> half of my band, you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, That's I, had, I, had, I had one student that was funny. Uh, he, he was a bass player, uh, Tabari Lake. Uh, he's out here, he lives out here now. Great bass player. Um, but he was in class, and I noticed every time... He showed up in class, had his work done. He was always like on time, boom, 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 boom. And as I was trying to tell my students this, I said, you don't understand you're being evaluated when you don't even think you're being evaluated. Mm -hmm. so, oh, we got to talk about that. Yeah, because this guy, he showed up. He'd always had his stuff done. So I said, you know what? I could rely on him. So my bass player could make this gig with me in Poland with one of the greatest orchestras in Poland. I asked Tobias to do it. Wow. Right? And he came over. We had Dee Dee Bridgewater, we had uh, Nona Hendrix, uh, we had some other singers, and this huge orchestra. And Tabari was the bass player. Yeah, I, he yeah. was a kid. He was a student. He was a kid. kid. Wide-eyed kid. But he came and he hung, and he was very, very much up to the task. To the point where Dee Dee hired him in her band. Yeah, so I'm all... I'm so all talk about that for a second, Terrence. What, mm -hmm. for young aspiring musicians, composers... Uh -huh. What is it? What what is the work ethic that is going to get them the gig? It's simple. Don't be the headache. Mm -hmm. Don't be the headache. Don't be the guy people got to look for. Don't be the guy that doesn't know the music. Mm -hmm. Don't be the guy that's not prepared. Don't be the guy that everybody's got to wait on. Mm -hmm. It's just that simple. You know, if if you come there prepared, know what you're doing, and you're on time, that's like ninety percent of the gig. Have you dealt with prima donnas on? No, because I don't hire prima donnas. Mm -hmm. But I mean, if have you been in a position where you've had to wait on no. people? Good. No. Mm -hmm. No, because I, I I I don't. That's not that's for me. That's that's not about music. Mm -hmm. That's about that's an ego thing or an insecurity thing. It's a struggle for somebody to try to prop themselves up and make themselves feel good about mm -hmm. themselves by having other people wait on them. Mm -hmm. And to me, that has nothing to do with what my beliefs are in terms of spirituality and who we are on the planet and who we are in the universe. I took my son to see them. They were filming uh, mm -hmm. A Star is Born and Lady Gaga was going to be there with Bradley Cooper. Okay. And so I took my son uh -huh. and we were at the Greek mm -hmm. and it was the torturous day from hell and it was right. like Bradley had just started directing and he spent the whole day going like this. I mean, it was like hours of like yeah. him going like this and then Lady Gaga came out and sang like three notes and it was like crazy but, mm -hmm. but talk about, wow. Um, uh, I was I was segueing into something. Oh, favorite venue. Do you have a favorite venue that you love oh. to play? Uh, no, I love playing New Orleans Jazz Fest just because mm -hmm. it's my hometown. Mm -hmm. And whenever I play there, it, it feels it, it feels like a homecoming mm -hmm. because there are people that come from all over the world come to the festival itself, you know. And there are regulars that come. And when you go when you go out on that stage. That state, there's four thousand people out there, and you look out in the audience, you go, "Hey, what's up?" Hey. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's always cool. That's sweet. What's the biggest thing you've ever? Man, when I was playing with our Blakey, we played a baseball stadium Ooh. in Japan. It had thirty thousand people out there listening to jazz. Wow. I couldn't believe it. I was, you know, because when they took us to the baseball stadium, I'm like, "Well, why are we here?" <laughs> you know, and we go out on the stage, and it's like, 
Wow. Like 30,000 people out there. And then I played another concert at the Budokan. Again, in Japan, it was mm-hmm. 10,000 people. Yeah. That's pretty sweet. It is. It is. And look, this other night with Lady Gaga, 5,000 people in Las Vegas. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, and I guess for jazz, that's 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 a big deal. Oh, found out that show was more successful than her pop show. Really? Yeah. Yeah, it did really well. And she yeah. does that regularly? She's doing it. She just finished this first this first residency, but she's going to be back there, I think, again in May. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty fantastic. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for doing this, Terrence. I, I chased you down. I don't know if you. No, remember. I'm sorry. I no, no. But, sorry. Well, yeah. we had another date for <laughs> yeah. this, but when when I saw Black Clansman the first time, I like ran up to you at the, <laughs> yeah, at the I thing, and I was like, right. okay, please, I'm I friends with Snuffy Walton. Please do yeah. this, <laughs> yeah. and um, and you uh, and. Thank you for seeing it through. I'm, I'm so grateful. I know how busy you are. No, thank you for having me. Um, it's been fun. It was, it was a treat. And yeah. Pete, George, thank you. Tell us where hey. you're going to be next week, Pete. Grand Hotel Las Vegas, five nights. All oh, right. Grand Hotel Las Vegas. Yeah. Um, and uh, we'll see you next week without Pete, but I will be here with, um, well, I won't be in Terrence's house, but I will be at <laughs> Connie Stevens' house really? with Lainey Kazan nice, having, nice. Um, a, talk about jazz. She's a great singer. Yeah. Lainey has a great oh, voice. She's amazing. Yeah. So uh, we'll see you next week. And uh, thanks so much, Pete. And thank you, Terrence. Thank you. See you then. All right.